breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network podcast network. It is always wonderful to be with you. Happy New Year. I hope you've all uh, logged in your resolutions for the year. I'm going to give you mine uh, coming to you from uh, this podcast, if you will. And thanks for letting me take a week off last week. I hope you had time with your family. That was the reason I took some time off. And uh, it was nice to have a week off, but it is always fantastic to be back with all of you. And in this new year, uh, strap in your seatbelts because it is sure to be more of a tumultuous year than even the one before. And at this podcast, I hope you find a place that can talk to you about radical Islam, about the issues related to domestic and foreign policy that we never seem to have really any conversation about in mainstream media, the issues that uh, seem to dominate because of secondary, tertiary agendas that nobody knows about, here you and I will talk about. So without further ado, by the way, share this podcast on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and Reform This Radio is Twitter handle. Uh, also, go to uh, theblaze.com backslash podcast to share this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can find it. So, on this new year, I have to mention, I know we talked a few weeks about a lot about the Khashoggi assassination, but some revelations recently came to light about the reality of who was behind Jamal Khashoggi. And it's especially poignant as we begin this new year because he was named the Person of the Year by Time Magazine. Person of the Year. Now, also it included journalists and others who were seeking free speech, So, um, but his photo was the main one on the cover. And it turns out the Washington Post just sort of slid this in. And you notice, since the Washington Post discussed what was behind much of his writing, you haven't heard much about Jamal Khashoggi's assassination, how much the press was initially on a daily drumbeat from CNN, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, were pushing that this must somehow end and create a huge chasm with the Saudis. Forget the fact that the Saudis were funding left and right in the United States. Never mind it. Now, all of a sudden, set aside the Saudi money going to the Clinton Foundation, going to so many foundations. That didn't matter. Now, this was a major, major deal that needed to be dealt with. But what came out this week was the fact that the Qataris had been not only funding, but actually directly, people working directly for the Qatari government were helping massage and edit and create ideas for his editorials. Text messages were revealed in which ideas were pitched, in which his pieces were edited. Uh, I believe her name is Karen Atiyah, uh, acknowledged this. So, this is not something that can be ignored. This is not journalism. He was heralded as a journalist, and it turns out he probably should have been registered under FARA, Foreign Agency Registration Act, that his ideas and submissions were being modified. Now, does this uh, in no way justifies his killing or assassination, but 
the bottom line is, is this is not somebody working for democracy as a free thinker that should then become more important than all the other activists that are in jail in Saudi Arabia that have been beheaded, dismembered, tortured, killed by the Saudis that nobody cared about. So, something to think about. Post reported this. The Post talked about Qatar's Qatar's relationship. Now, I'll remind you, where does Qatar fit into the global issue? They are the primary cancer cell from which the Muslim Brotherhood operates globally. Their ideology of Yusuf Qardawi's program of Sharia and life and Al Jazeera, which is one of the most influential Arab networks on the planet, is a font as a propaganda network for the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamists. Who does Qatar work with? Closely allied with Turkey, closely allied with Iran. That axis, that triangle of Iran, Turkey, and Qatar now is basically the neo-caliphate, neo-Ottoman, neo-Islamist triangle that's working against the old establishment monarchical dictatorship of the Arab governments. That's where the divide's happening on the Sunni side, Iran has weighed in with the Islamists, with the viral Islamists in that equation. So the Khashoggi assassination is not as simple as a dictatorship of under MBS and his father, King Salman, deciding to off a democracy activist. No, this was a battle between the Islamists of the Muslim Brotherhood and the new order of the neo-monarchs and the neo-dictators, if you will. None of them are exactly our allies when it comes especially to ideology, but the reality should be clear. As we enter the new year, my resolution for this year, my resolution is I work harder to convince and to awaken. Yes, woke. Will Americans become more woke about Islamism, understand why it matters, why you can't de-radicalize, why you can't really counter-radicalize, but we need to have counter-Islamism, why you should care, why it should not just be after each Islamist attack, why we should not just pay attention to these things after specific bombs and attacks on innocents, but rather that this is a global problem that as the president addresses Iran, addresses Syria, addresses Saudi Arabia, addresses Egypt, addresses Afghanistan, addresses the threat domestically. Again, we saw a vehicular jihad happen earlier on the January 1st this year on New Year's Day in Europe. It continues. My resolution is to work harder to wake up Americans to the need that you have in your top three list of things that you care about, the legacy we leave behind as a country in fighting political Islam and fighting Islamic theocracy. Will we leave that legacy behind? Will we change the world by impacting the constituency that is upwards of a quarter of the population on the planet, which are Muslim, towards abandoning theocracy and embracing liberty. It's a tough sell ideologically. It's a tough sell. And we're going to talk about some of the president's comments this week that I think color how we address these things. But at the end of the day, my resolution is to make you all aware how there is a profound return on investment, not to send our blood and treasure, but to 
become the ambassadors for liberty to really what we are as the world's last best hope. Not by troops, not by arms, but by ideas. Will we be those ambassadors or will we continue to allow the Islamists to gain traction everywhere on the planet? Because where there are vacuums, it's either the Islamists or the autocratic dictatorships, the military dictatorships that are filling those vacuums. That's my resolution. So first, I want to talk about, we saw this week, the new Congress was sworn in, and the media is calling it a giant step forward. Yes, this week, the media said a giant, and I'm talking about main lamestream media, CNN called it a giant step forward for Muslim Women is finally here. And a piece written by Rafia Zakaria, who I've debated before. Now she blocks me on Twitter. I've talked to you about her before. Uh, she comes across as a liberal, comes across as uh, uh, reports to be non-Islamist. But at the end of the day, there is no greater apologist for Islamism. There's no greater denier for Islamism. But let's first talk about what what was in her piece. She said it's, this is a giant step forward. What is she talking about? Well, the swearing in of two Muslim congresswomen in the halls of Congress this week somehow is the greatest step forward for Muslim women. Now, if these were ambassadors of diversity, ambassadors of debate and, and, and various and sundry ideologies in the Muslim community, perhaps. But I think there is no greater representative of the Islamist establishment than Ilhan Omar, the new congresswoman from Minnesota who took over for the previous Islamist apologist, Keith Ellison, at that same district. And now Rashida Tlaib from John Conyers' district that includes Dearborn. Tlaib's identity is tied, simply defined by her Palestinian identity. Ilhan Omar's identity is simply defined by her hijab and her Islamist ideology. As you'll notice, neither's identity is defined by their Americanism, by their ideology of liberty, of constitutional rights, of Bill of Rights, understanding what our secular republic is and understanding what a country under God is versus a country under Islam. Now, they would call this Islamophobia. They would say that this is uh, fear-mongering. But at the end of the day, call all of their writings. You will find droves of tweets and writings against Israel, against the West, against our military. Will you see anything in defense of the beauty of American legal system, of the beauty of the advancement of democracy? No. To the writer in this piece this week, um, Rafia Zakaria, the, the, the main representation of the beauty of America is these two women being elected to Congress. I'm not sure the majority of American Muslim women would identify with the core causes that these two women identify as their causes, one being simply a Palestinian identity. And you'll see the first map of the Middle East put in Rashida Tlaib's Congress congressional office this week had a sticky put over Israel with an arrow saying Palestine over the state of Israel. This is what reporters who took pictures in her office are showing. She is Hamas's congresswoman. She is the radical Palestinian movement's congresswoman. She is the Islamist's congresswoman. 
but she is not reformists congresswoman she's not the congresswoman for muslim reformers for modern muslim uh, 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 advocates against political islam for diversity of ideology for women's liberation yes she may not wear the hijab but how many speeches can you find by rashida Tlaib that actually took on the misogynists of the imam clerical establishment you won't find that many how many speeches by ilhan omar from minnesota will you find against the nation of islam or the, against the radical islamists of the council on american islamic relations who were present and proud of her election so listen they were elected fairly uh, it is a representation of their districts that they represent not the rest of this country uh, but at the end of the day don't make it out more than it is don't use identity politics to to give all muslims the stigma of or all women for example muslim women of of being stigmatized by being apologists for islamism or being apologists for the hijab yes some women may agree to wear a hijab others may not but at the end of the day ilhan omar getting an exception for congressional rules to wear the hijab might be fine there should have never been such a restriction anyway but that does not become a defining moment for muslims the jewish community will also benefit from that other faith community Sikhs will benefit from that that is not a defining moment for Muslims in Congress the swearing in on the Quran again I would say is important you should swear in on a book that the public can assume that you are swearing to God to tell the truth I've had this debate with Dennis Prager Dennis initially said well because of the traditions that we have in America it is about tradition. It's not about necessarily what the book is. And you'll find in that debate I had with him, uh, we both agreed on most of it. And at the end, I said, listen, uh, the, the traditions are fine, but if you want a Muslim to swear to God that they will uphold the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights and defend its principles under God and to God, then they should swear on their book on what they believe is God's word and not on something that they do not believe to be necessarily God's word. So, at the end of her piece in CNN, she says, Zechariah says, in Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman, they will see a black woman who wears a headscarf and who is a committed progressive. And Rashida Tlaib, they will see a brown woman who, like most Muslim American women, chooses not to wear a headscarf but remains committed to her faith and to advancing the cause of the working class families like her own. Isn't this insulting? Isn't it insulting that the definition of a woman is whether she wears or not the hijab? Isn't it insulting that you have to identify these women as black or brown? Isn't it insulting that the Muslim identity there that this author presented was related to identity skin deep politics not to ideologies where they stand against islamism against radical ideology that is teeming with movements in iran and saudi arabia and syria in in pakistan and islamic republics yes i'll give them a chance it's not about left or right there are many leftists and socialists that i work with that are anti-islamists that i will work with in the movement against political islam because they are also anti-theocratic i might be a conservative that believes 
in family values and other aspects that makes me a conservative. But at the end of the day, this is not about left-right, but yet the media will attach, and make no mistake, I'm spending time on this today because these two congresswomen are going to become the poster children of the Muslim community, no different than Keith Ellison was. Despite all of the things he did, he could do no wrong, whether despite the Me Too movement, he repeatedly was accused of physical abuse by his wife, and yet it was ignored, basically ignored. So, the hypocrisy on the left notwithstanding, at the end of the day, you cannot reform a faith whose community is defined by the predominant discussion of the communities at large as a monolith, as an apologetic monolith in which everything else internally is ignored. That can't happen. Reformation cannot happen unless you have critical thinking about all of the major ideologies from punishments to inheritance to um, free speech issues to blasphemy issues to uh, all of the aspects related to theological interventions in our daily lives. If they can't be a part, if somebody's going to use their Muslim identity to get elected— use their Palestinian identity to be elected, then their positions about Islamism, then their positions about Palestinian issues, Israeli democracy matters. And we need to hold them accountable and not have a bigotry of low expectations. You know, one of the things I think that's important to talk about is also when you look at the level of hate and bigotry that exists, you know, we're talking about Rashida Tlaib, in many of the radicals in the Palestinian movement, they demonize Israel, they demonize Zionists by invoking blood libel, invoking forms of anti-Semitic bigotry that is often minimized. We see this in the Women's March that finally is falling apart uh, in uh, many cities now that uh, have refused to participate in the Women's March because of their leadership. We saw the founders of the women, or the founder of the Women's March pulling out her support, saying that uh, the uh, um, continued connection with uh, Linda Sarsour and Tamara Mallory uh, are just a bridge too far that these individuals have demonstrated significant anti-Semitism to the levels uh, that uh, um, cannot be respected. So uh, as a result, uh, we've seen uh, that there, as a result, we've seen finally some awakening, if you will, uh, related to understanding the threat of anti-Semitism. Now, there's a case recently that came to light thanks to Canary Mission, and I'd ask you to look at their website, canarymission.org. They've been doing unbelievable work in outing some of the putrid hatred uh, put out by many of the Islamists and Palestinian activists. Uh, but a Ohio hospital, Cleveland Clinic, uh, had uh, dismissed one of its physicians, one of its residents in internal medicine, and that actually is a specialty that I know a lot about. I was, I'm was i an internist in practice and trained at Bethesda Naval Hospital. 
Lara Kolob, K-O-L-L-A-B, 27, a resident of Westlake, uh, was a supervised resident at Cleveland Clinic from July and then ended in September 2018. Now, in their responses publicly, Cleveland Clinic did not mention why she was relieved of her of her job. Uh, but in November, Canary Mission published a compilation of dozens of her tweets dating from 2011 to 2017. And she had called for violence against Jews. She had called them dogs. She minimized the Holocaust. She likened Israel to Nazi Germany, Nazi regime, and claimed that Zionists controlled the U.S. media and schools. And uh, really, you know, hats off to Canary Mission for finding a lot of these tweets. She has uh, since shut down all of her social media accounts, including Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. But now, was this doctor relieved of her duties because of these social media comments? Maybe. It appears that way. Uh, But the report from Canary Mission was released in November. She was relieved in September. She had the offensive, the offensive statement on Twitter that maybe she will give the wrong medications intentionally to Jews. And she said the Arabic Yehud as a result. Now, some people may say, well, this is just one individual that's a bigot, that's an anti-Semite. What does, you know, we see a lot of these haters out there. Well, first of all, this is a doctor. This is someone who went to a a prominent medical school, Toro Medical School, who also released a statement saying that they don't condone any of this. Now, all of this social media was, was being posted. How many others in the community saw her posting this? You go to the Canary Mission website, you see year after year, 2012, 2013, 2014 of, of social media posts of, of her related to the Al-Auda movement and others that are just horrific. Minimizing the Holocaust, supporting the BDS, anti-Semitic movement, and defending Hamas. So, What's more important is all of the people, when you identify one individual, if they're just sort of a outlier, that's fine. But if this is an individual who's a physician, prominent medical student, and then an activist that then gets a position at Cleveland Clinic, how many orders of denial have to be involved? And you wonder where, why reformation is not happening? How many orders of denial have to be involved for somebody like this to be ignored on social media? And I really, really think this is a bigotry of low expectations. We see so many people, you, they use the N-word once. They use, um, they make another statement once, and next thing you know, they're removed, they are marginalized, and their hatred is condemned. But yet, in the Muslim communities, in the Palestinian communities, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism, anti-Westernism is ignored, because there is a bigotry of low expectations that well they have I, I don't even know what the rationale is but I have to tell you as a Muslim it is offensive that they are not given the same expectations as the rest of the community and this needs to change and I hope Kolob's Lara Kolob's K-O-L-L-A-B's experience serves as a reminder of how vigilant we need to be in order to Um, how vigilant we need to be in order to maintain 
consistency and begin the hard work of reform. We talked about my resolution earlier. You can't educate Americans if you don't use every teaching moment in order to um, use every teaching moment in order to change the condition that we live in. And it has to be an expectation that we make of Muslims, of the Arabic community, Palestinian community and all of them that they may have some grievances that need to be addressed but they need to do it with the same respect that we do every community without tolerating any forms of bigotry hatred and also promoting free speech it's amazing to me these people that condemn that that are endorsers of holocaust denial on the other hand want to talk about islamophobia and prevent people from expressing valid opinions the hypocrisy is just just unbelievable. The hypocrisy of, on the one hand, wanting to suppress any free speech about Islam and Islam of, and what they perceive to be this bizarre concept of Islamophobia, and on the other hand, treating an entire faith community, the Jewish community, in a way of uh, of a level of hatred. Just Google for me. How many Muslim groups spoke out in support of the condemnation of Laura Kolob? that Canary Mission exposed? How many? Zero. Other than the Muslim reformers, you'll see Majid Nawaz, Shireen Kudosi, Rahil Raza, myself, Ezra Namani, and others exposing this. But aside from our voices of reform, you're not going to find really anybody of leadership level condemning the radical bigotry coming out of doctors like Laura Kulop. And that needs to be dealt with. Last, I wanted to talk to you about this Believe it or not, we talk about Islamism and nobody seems to understand what that is. The American Center for Democracy and Economic Warfare in Canada talked this week about the Islamic Party of Ontario. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is an Islamic Party of Ontario. It is a new political party that plans to run in the next Ontario provincial election. Jawad Anwar and its office declared its existence on December 8, 2018, published its principles, and it said the Islamic Party of Ontario believes in the supremacy of God and understands that it is our constitutional requirement to make all the rules of law of provinces and federal in obedience and according to the will of God. Believing in God's supremacy means believing in the oneness, his obedience in all spheres of life. Sounds, I guess, benign, if you will. Now it's a bit Unwestern, if you will, un-American, un-Canadian, if there is such a term, to put that much religion into a party's documents. Many of the naysayers will say, well, there's in the West there are the Christian Democrats of Germany and others, so what's, what's the harm here? But then they say, Islam is the oldest deen of God brought and started by Adam, the first man. He say, we understand and believe that Islam is the native deen, the native deen of Ontario and Canada. And then they go on. So it is an entire document. It is an entire document of religious doctrine that is being released. It then talks about messenger of God, etc. Nothing about policies, positions, or typical platforms of parties. So if anyone doubted that Islamism is a threat, could these parties be elected? You'd say, well, there's communist parties, there's socialist parties. They don't have a chance to be elected. This is an education for you. 
read about the Islamist Party of Ontario. There was an American Islamic Party uh, a few years ago that had started in North Carolina, uh, had uh, deep connections to uh, Salafists uh, in North Carolina and also Nation of Islam and a lot of crossover separatist movements. Bottom line is, is they are starting to to sort of raise their head, if you will. And you need to understand them because these parties are an education into understanding what Islamism is. When you say, what is political Islam? Well, many in the West, especially in America, the Islamists and mosques and others, realize that there are no religious parties per se in America, so they fly under the radar. But in London, the Muslim Brotherhood has offices. Um, in Europe, they are starting, they are much more active. You see Hizb tahrir a, a political movement that seeks to reestablish the caliphate has large demonstrations of 10, 15,000 at times, not only in Indonesia, but in London, in Europe, in Germany. So these movements exist. Hizbut Tahrir tried to have meetings in Chicago. They've had a couple. We actually uh, had uh, called for the hotels to boycott them, and they did not. But at the end of the day, they are a symptom, a pathognomonic symptom, as we say in medicine, of a deeper ideology that needs to be confronted. They define what is Islamism and that other groups that may not define, may not create political parties do the same thing. They seek to advance the collectivization of Muslims under the guise of political Islam under an Islamic party. So whether they call themselves the Muslim Brotherhood or whether they call themselves Muslims who are active at their mosque, when they have a political movement involved, when they talk about voting together as a block, when they talk about a platform that involves fighting Islamophobia and other things, this is part of Islamism. We can debate that or not, but we have to acknowledge that it exists in various forms. And once you start to understand what the Islamic Party of Ontario, what the American Islamic parties are, these little, not aberrations, but symptoms of the tip of the iceberg, then you'll begin to understand what we're trying to do on this program, what we're trying to do at the Muslim Reform Movement and encountering political Islam. Last, I want to end. We heard this this week, President Trump in sort of another one of his, he had a couple of impromptu press conferences this week. One was a cabinet meeting that he had in his Oval Office. And he said, well, we're going to pull troops out of Syria. And you and I talked about that two episodes ago. But he said, well, Syria, they're just sand and death. I would be remiss if I didn't spend a minute talking to you about that. And, you know, listen, I completely understand the frustration of Americans, of Westerners, in, in, in providing blood and treasure to countries that become actually more chaotic, more anarchical, without any return on investment. I get that. But words matter. Leadership matters. To call Syria just sand and death. There are 21 million people there who are trying to have revolutions. Fine, stay away from it. Prevent it from affecting the region, I think it's important. We talked about last time about why I thought a pullout of just a few hundred troops that we had there, 2,000 troops, most of which are special forces that I think were protecting Kurds and other allies. So there were strategic reasons to stay there to prevent a larger conflagration of a whole regional conflict with Russia, Iran, the Kurds, Turkey, Al-Qaeda groups, ISIS, 
Lebanon, Hezbollah, etc. Just a cauldron brewing there. But to call Syria sand and death might be a way to describe it in four words without humanity. But there's a humanity there. Just as there was a humanity in America before the revolution, before the American Revolution that set aside theocracy and created the greatest democracy on the planet. God knows what will be created in Syria and what they will create, but to say that there's not a humanity there fighting against both the radical Islamists, 10,000 Kurds gave their lives in the last two or three years to fight ISIS. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians have been fighting Assad, fighting Hezbollah, fighting Iran, fighting ISIS, and all of the evils in that cauldron. If we minimize the humanity of what's being fought there, we minimize who we are as Americans. It's not sand and death, Mr. President. When I call, when we call our family on WhatsApp or Skype in Damascus or Aleppo, praying that there's not another chemical attack from the Assad regime, praying that there's no more beheadings or slaughters from ISIS. We're not calling sand and death. We're calling human beings, our cousins, our aunts, our family. Words matter when they come from the White House. Compassion matters. Humanity matters. It is who we are as the freest country on earth. Yes, I believe as an American, America first. We cannot help others if we do not help ourselves first. But we cannot lose sight of the leadership in the world that we have as humanitarians, even in our words. This is Zudi Jasser. It's always great to be with you. God bless. Stay strong. Stay with me. Keep your seatbelt fastened this year in 2019. And we'll be back next week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.